Welcome to the first episode in Season 7 of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin from the University of Wollongong. We're beginning this season with a podcast dealing with one of the most tragic peacetime maritime disasters in the 20th century. On the evening of the 27th of January 1949, the overcrowded passenger ship Taiping, which was carrying more than 1,500 passengers bound for the Taiwanese port of Kilung, collided with the 4,000 tonne cargo ship Qianyan. Both ships sank and only about 50 people survived from amongst both ships. About a dozen survivors reached nearby islands and they were rescued by fishermen, while 34 were rescued at sea by a destroyer. In the two-part Taiwanese film of the tragedy called The Crossing, which was released in 2014, the destroyer was depicted as American, and in reality it was the Australian destroyer HMAS Warramunga. So to tell the true story of the incident, I'm joined online today by Rear Admiral Simon Harrington, who is the son of the commanding officer of Warramunga, Captain Arch Harrington. During his career, Simon commanded the frigates Canberra and Adelaide, and as a Rear Admiral, he was the head of the Australian Defence Staff in Washington. Since retiring from the Navy, he has at various times served on the Repatriation Commission, the Council of the Australian War Memorial, and is now an executive coach and mentor. We're also joined today by Jennifer Chingbo Ma, who is the granddaughter of Mr Chow Zhongzhou, a survivor of the Taiping incident. She's an experienced chief financial officer in the biotechnology and pharmaceutical industry, and she's now the head of finance at the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Radiologists. Jennifer's parents, Mr Chow Zhongming and Madame Zhang Tao, wrote a book on the tragedy called Nuhai Chen Zhao, or The Passage Taiping Collision. And finally today, we're joined by Cindy Xie, who is a producer and the major presenter of SBS Radio's Mandarin program. Cindy has over 25 years of experience as a journalist and a news anchor across Australian and Chinese radio and TV stations. And quite recently, she has reported on the tragedy and the connection with HMAS Warramunga. Thank you all for joining me. First off, let's set the scene. Cindy, why was the Taiping on a passage to Keelung in the first place? Yes, so it was the end of the China Second Civil War between the Kuomintang Party and the Communist Party in which the Kuomintangs lost. The government chairman of Republic of China, Jiang Zhongzhen, then decided to relocate the Kuomintang Party and its government facilities to Taiwan. He ordered the Kuomintang troops to gradually withdraw from mainland China. The government of Republic of China and two million residents follows a relocation from mainland China to Taiwan shortly afterwards. From the two million citizens that were a part of the relocation from mainland China to Taiwan, it included about 1,000 passengers that were on the Taiping ship. Taiping ship was just like a, every other ship that were traveling from Shanghai to Keelung, and we and was a ship a refugee. The main personnel that were evacuating to Taiwan through Taiping ship were businessmen, Kuomintang's officials, and their family members. Jennifer, can you tell us a bit about one of those passengers who was on board, who was in fact your grandfather? Can you tell us a bit about him and why he was on board? Good afternoon, and thank you for having me at the program. The short answer is, my grandfather, as a member of the National Party, was retreating to Taiwan ahead of the advancement of the Communist People's Liberation Army to Shanghai, the National Party's last foothold of the mainland. This is later called the Great Retreat. 
grandfather was born in 1918, and he lived through turbulent times when China was infested with wars and the famines and the political divisions. He was born into a middle-class farm owner family in Liaoning province of Northeast China during the warlord era. In 1931, Japan invaded northern part of China and formed the Manchu Guo, a puppet state of the Empire of Japan. And in 34, it became a constitutional monarchy headed by the last emperor, Puyi. However, under the de facto control of Japan. With his grandpa's exceptional academic performances, he was awarded a place in the newly established scholarship to study in Japan. Under the full sponsorship of Manchugo government, he studied in Japan between 34 to 42 and returned to visit his family twice only. The ironing is he joined the National Party during this period and was actively participating in anti-Japanese invasion movements. February 1942, Grandpa was arrested in Tokyo. He was in solitary confinement in a cell across from a U.S. pilot who was under the same terrible predicament. In May 1942, he was transferred to the capital of Manchukuo, Changchun, for sentencing. He was sentenced to 15 years, but released in 1945 when Japanese surrendered. Returning to his hometown, Tieling, where the National Party was taking control from Japanese, Grandpa was awarded with the party official position. During this time, he had opportunity to implement some of his liberal ideology, like encouraging parents to send their girls to school for education. He also sponsored his younger sisters to colleges against his parents' will. His influence certainly impacted their lives in a positive way. Peace was such a luxury. Before his first term in government ended, Civil war broke out, and the communists gained grounds with the help of the Soviet Union Red Army from the north. In late 1947, grandfather left his hometown again, and this time he did, he did not manage to return until 40 years later. His suggestion of selling off valuables and his leaving was not well received by grandma and family elders. He went to Beijing alone and sent a ticket for my father, 14 at a time, to relocate to a boarding school in Beijing. In 1948, my father saw Grandpa off to Taiwan for the first time on board a passenger ship from Tianjin. Who would have known? It will be 40 years before they were reunited. Following the 1949 shipwreck, grandfather lived in Taiwan for three years. In 1952, he moved to Japan and spent the rest of his life between Yokohama and Tokyo. He passed away in 2014 at the age of 95. A bit about my grandpa's marriage as it's important uh, um, underlying information. 
grandparents were engaged through family arrangement in 1930, when he was merely 12, and Grandma was 15. They were married in 1932, when he was 14, studying boarding school. Grandma assisted her mother-in-law in looking after younger siblings of grandfather. Although she was handpicked by the great-grandfather, who was very pleased with her looks and the family background, they had never met each other before their wedding night, when he finally could take her red veil off. They consummated the marriage after he returned from school to prepare for his further education in Japan. My father was conceived when he left in early 1934. My uncle was born in 1946, when grandfather was in local government. Although their time together was less than two years collectively, they were very different in character and education, but they always respected each other. Grandma did her utmost to raise her children in his absence, and they ensured they received the best education available. When they reunited in 1988, father arranged a hotel suite for them to spend a few days alone. They were troubled at the reception, as they could not provide their marriage certificate, so as to reside in the same room. Apparently, that was the only time in their marriage when they actually were together alone. They were talking for days without leaving the room. The war, the persecution during Cultural Revolution, and their children. They resolved many of their differences. She understood why he had to leave, and they accepted all the twists and turns life had spun on them. They both felt a sense of achievement. When grandfather first reconnected with the family, he offered a reward to grandma for bringing up their children and for looking after his parents. She said she was proud of her sons and was content with her life. And if he could, please sponsor their grandchildren to study overseas, so they have the opportunity. To broaden their horizon, like he had. It's, it's a fascinating story indeed, and I guess Simon, that brings us up to the point of the of the collision between this very overcrowded vessel carrying more than one and a half thousand people and a, and a and a and a merchant vessel with a load of coal. Do we know very much about how the collision occurred?、Uh, we know a little bit,、um, but. To, to set the scene a little,、um, her legal capacity was about five hundred,、um, and five hundred and eight tickets had been sold. But as you say, there was up to fifteen hundred passengers embarked. It was the night before the Lunar New Year, so demand to go to Taiwan was perhaps even higher than would normally have been the case, even with all the refugees. It was also midwinter. And Jenny's grandfather, Jennifer's grandfather, says that he later looked at the weather records for that season, and it was the coldest day recorded that year. And in Warramunga's report of the incident,、uh, she records that the sea temperature as being forty-two degrees Fahrenheit, or five and a half degrees Celsius. So、uh, the water was pretty cold for the survivors. 
Taiping had departed Shanghai at about 1600, bound for Keelung in Taiwan. She had darkened ship, and just before midnight, as she was near the Zhuzhan Archipelago, which is about 50 nautical miles south of Shanghai, just off the Chinese mainland, she was darkened, presumably because the captain was concerned that she might have been intercepted by the communists, especially if they, they thought she was carrying gold reserves. And it was thought by some that uh, Chiang Kai-shek uh, was moving some of the gold reserves he had uh, on, on the Taiping. Around midnight, she collided with the uh, 4,000-tonne coal carrier called the Chanyang, which was bound for Shanghai. The one eyewitness account of the immediate aftermath that I was found is from Jennifer's grandfather, and it goes as follows. Fortunately, from the port side of the deck where I was located, I could easily see what had happened. I noticed the bow of the Taiping was close to the port side of the stern of the Chiangyang. From that, it would seem likely that the Chiangyang was crossing Taiping's bow from starboard to port and was struck port side aft before she was clear. If that's the case, the Chiangyang would seem to have been unaware of the Taiping, but I can't find any record of whether or not the Chiangyang was darkened. You'd have to think that it was, as it would have had the right of way if that is what had happened. And if the Taiping was aware of uh, her presence, she could easily have avoided it. It must have been a pretty solid blow as the coal carrier sank within minutes, whereas at least initially some of the Taiping's crew didn't seem to be overly concerned about her seaworthiness. Although after some concerns were expressed by some of the passengers, the captain advised that they would return to Shanghai as a precaution. And indeed, the ship was altering course to do so once the Chiangyong had sunk and survivors from that ship had been rescued. But things changed pretty quickly and she started to list to starboard and sank soon after. Staying with you, Simon, what was Warramunga doing uh, under your father's command up in North, North Asia at the time? And how did your father learn of the collision? What was his, what was his immediate response? Uh, Warramunga had deployed to Japan in October 1948 as part of the British Commonwealth Occupation Forces. This was her fourth deployment to Japan since the end of the war, where she'd been in Tokyo Bay for the formal surrender ceremony and had subsequently helped with the repatriation of POWs. So she was very familiar with the waters, having spent nearly a total of two of the previous five years up there. She was under the operational command of the Royal Navy and would have been fully integrated with the RN. In fact, when this rescue occurred, she'd been dispatched to go to Nanking, which is some 300 kilometres up the Yangtze River. There was a British and an Australian embassy there, and there was considerable concern about the safety of the SARF. So a British warship was stationed there as a guard ship, and Warramunga was on her way there when the rescue occurred, and indeed her arrival at Nanking was, uh, or Nanjing was delayed only by 24 hours by the rescues. Some of the older listeners in particular will be aware of the, uh, the story of the Yangtze incident involving HMS Amethyst. She was proceeding upstream to assume that role only two months later when that incident occurred, so it was pretty stressful times. Anyway, uh, at 1.14 on the morning of um, the 28th of January, she intercepted an SOS from the Taiping saying the collision had, had occurred and that the Jianyong had sunk and this had occurred off Bonham Lighthouse, which is the northeast end of the Zhuzhan Archipelago. 
She immediately set course for there, arriving off the lighthouse at 4.45. There was one small contact on radar, which proved to be a fishing vessel. The 28-inch searchlight was switched on and showed only oil slicks. It was estimated the drift was to the southeast, and so Warramunga proceeded in that direction at five knots. It wasn't until just after 6.30, nearly two hours after she'd arrived on the scene, that another oil slick was encountered. And 10 minutes after that, small objects were sighted about two miles ahead. They proved to be the rafts and wreckage from the two ships. Nets, ladders and boats were prepared, and within the hour they had recovered the 35 survivors, 31 males, two of whom were Kianyan's crew and four females. They were cleaned up, given clean, dry clothes and taken down to the machinery spaces to warm up, provided with food and cigarettes and were, according to the survivors' reports, cared for very well. Jennifer, what was your grandfather's recollection of the collision that Simon's just described and how, how did he actually survive the sinking? Well, it is certainly a fascinating story of survival, especially for someone who couldn't swim. Grandfather bought a ticket on board of Taiping from the black market. It's an on-deck space only. He boarded the ship in the afternoon of January 27th, 1949. The deck was full, and there were jumbo-sized cargo containers being placed on deck here and there. The departure was delayed from 2 p.m. to after 5 p.m. The winter sky darkened quickly and Taiping moved slowly in the dark sea. People started to fall asleep. Not long after midnight, he was awakened by a loud boom. He looked around and saw the bow of the Taiping was very close to the port side stern of another ship, later established as Jane Ran. He could see vividly the terror-stricken crew members of the Jane Ran rushing back and forth on the deck. In a short space of time, the Jianyuan started to sink. Taiping moved hastily, trying to render help. When grandfather asked a passing crew member of the situation, he was informed that Jianyuan is in danger, but their ship is safe. However, the crew member had already put on his life jacket. He observed that both ships moved and stayed in parallel position with a distance of less than 40 meters apart. Before long, crew members of Jian Yuan started to jump into the sea as the ship was sinking fast. Taiping lowered some of its life-saving equipment. Some sailors climbed up the rope ladders of Taiping. Jianyuan slowly disappeared into the water without leaning or tilting, maybe because it was fully loaded with coal and the even distributed weight kept the ship on an even keel. The final noise from Jianyuan was a sizzling sound it happened in less than 10 minutes after the collision, according to Grandpa. Grandfather joined other passengers in the ship's control room 
to inquire about the situation. They were informed that they will immediately turn the ship around to Shanghai as a safety precaution. When he returned to his on deck space, he heard groanings, noise, asking for help, and the sounds grew louder and louder from the deck below. He turned his head to follow the source of the sounds, and peeked through the opening of the stairway. To his astonishment, he saw hundreds of people's faces fully jammed at the entrances of the stairway leading to the upper deck. All the passengers from cabins below were trying to escape via the narrow stairway, but somehow stuck. A very sad scene, which imprinted in his mind for life. He and the other passengers noticed the ship was moving very slowly, as if it had no power. He was even more concerned, as he noticed the ship's list to the starboard side was increasing. He started to prepare himself by taking off his heavy coat, suit, and shoe. Although he could not swim and acted purely out of instinct. Afterwards, he turned to check the same stairways, and what he saw sent shiver down his spine, as he saw no faces but unmoving seawater. It dawned on him that eight hundred passengers below them had already drowned, even though the ship was still floating. the The fear he felt at that moment was indescribable. He dashed to the nearest lifeboat, which had around ten on board already. At that time, Taiping could no longer sail because it was severely listing to the starboard side. It started to sink from the stern. His lifeboat happened to be on the starboard side of the deck, and the ship was listing to the same direction. The lifeboat, upon contact with the sea, Easily floated. Meanwhile, as the ship sank at the stern, it pushed the bow of the ship straight up. All the lights went out. One could only see the night sky reflected on the horizon near the sound of the waves. Suddenly, the bow of the ship loomed over their lifeboat like a ten-meter-high mountain, plus the whirlpool. Created by the sinking ship, the lifeboat was overturned. It all happened in a split second. Grandfather found himself tightly holding on to a heavy rope attached to the lifeboat. He tried hopping on top of the upside-down lifeboat without any success, and in doing so, accidentally released the rope from his hand. He frantically struggled in the unbearable cold water, and kept swallowing seawater. Just as he thought this was the end of him, he found himself holding the end of a huge wooden board. Soon after, another man joined him at the other end of the board. They knew the board wouldn't sustain two men for a long time, 
and searched for another possible object. They spotted a box about two meters square floating in the vicinity. They paddled to the floating box. After a few attempts, and with the help of, of the men already on the box, they climbed onto the box. Three more joined them on the box until the box was just above water level. As they are drifting in the darkness, a sudden exclamation from fellow passengers of the box, shouting "Help! Help!" Grandfather quickly sat up and caught the sight of a large, bright, illuminated passenger ship, about a hundred meters from them, with searchlights on, scanning the water. It was a clear night, free from fogs and clouds. Everybody assumed. That they would be easily spotted and certainly be saved by screaming loudly to let them know there were survivors here. To their great disappointment, the ship steered to the opposite direction and left quietly within five minutes. Many hours passed while they were drifting in the cold, wintry water. The morning began to dawn. Just as they were losing all hope, a ship emerged out of nowhere. Unexpectedly, it was the Australian warship HMAS Warramanga came to their rescue. The ship abruptly stopped approximately 300 meters from their box. A lifeboat was lowered. And they started to pick up survivors. Thirty-five was rescued by Waramanga. There were many heartwarming moments throughout the rescue operation. Grandfather recalled a sailor taking off his jacket to put on a shivering man and continued his res- res- rescuing duty in the icy cold wind. The survivors were well cared for during their time on board the ship. They were sent back to Shanghai on 28th of January, 1949. It's a fascinating story and, and incredible to survive in these conditions at night and in the freezing water. And Cindy, there's another survivor, Li Xuven, who has left some recollection, his recollections of the sinking as well and, and of course, of his rescue. Well, tell us a bit about briefly what he has recounted of his experience. Mr. Li and his wife as well as 11 of his friends, all boarded the Taiping ship. It was notified that the ship would leave at two in the afternoon to Kelong, but didn't set, say, uh, didn't set sail until four in the afternoon for some unknown reason. The Taiping ship had reached the Zhoushan Islands after around the seven to eight hours of sailing. It was at midnight when Mr. Li had heard a loud noise from a saloon. And he immediately assumed that there was a collision between ships. He was then told that Taiping ship and the cargo ship Jianyuan had crashed into each other. Jianyuan began to rapidly sink after the collision. While standing on the deck of Taiping, Mr. Li was able to see the crowds that were struggling in the water. Taiping ship had thrown a lot of life-saving equipments and was able to save around twenty to thirty people. After Jianyuan ship had sunk, workers of the Taiping ship assumed the ship didn't suffer too much damage, so they decided to continue its journey. 
It was very soon after the large amounts of water began to rapidly enter the bottom cabin of the Taiping. The captain then immediately ordered the ship to sail towards the nearest shore at full speed. However, as the water began to enter the cabin at a very fast pace, the Taiping ship began to sink within 15 minutes on January 27th at 12.15 a.m. Mr. Li Shuwen and his wife immediately began to try to abort a lifeboat. But because of there are too many people trying to escape, they eventually fell into the sea. Soon after, the Taiping ship exploded and sank. Mr. Li only saw the heads swaying in the sea and the debris of the remaining bits of the Taiping ship around him were continuous desperate cries and help. Mr. Li, who had fallen into the sea and, seen, and had seen two ships with flashing red lights but never came towards them, and neither seemed to have heard the people scream of help. Mr. Li eventually climbed into a raft around which there were still many others that were struggling desperately in the cold water. But still, Mr. Li had to keep exercising his body to combat the cold. It was a dawn that he had seen a white boat sailing towards him. He waved his head desperately and uh, shouted for help. Eventually, he saw someone on the boat waving his arm at, he, at him too. After the boat had approached him, the sailors on board were able to rescue Mr. Li, who was the only one rescued out of his group of 13, which including his wife. And it was a, around 6.30 a.m. on 28th January 1949, Mr. Lee was rescued. Once rescued on board, an army officer gave Mr. Lee some red medication pills and supported him into a warm cabin where the sailors helped him take off his wet and cold coat and wrapped him in a dry, warm blanket. They provided him with clean undergarments and woolen socks. While Mr. Lee was recovering, there were also a few sailors that had brought him cigarettes, coffee, hot soup, and food. They also brought a dry towel for Mr. Lee so he could take a shower. But at that time, Mr. Lee's arms and legs were frozen, so he was unable to move. So after helping him to take a hot shower, the sailors took him back to the cabin to rest again. The ship sailed at full speed to Wusongkou in Shanghai with the 20 to 30 people that were rescued at the time. They were woken up half an hour prior to arriving at Wusongkou and were told that their clothes had been washed and dried. And they should go and retrieve their own clothes that were on the deck. Mr. Lee at the time thought, that's wonderful. That there are such kind-hearted people in the world. He said the words can't describe how touched he was when he stood on the deck and saw the deck rope full of the clean laundry. Mr. Lee then changed into clean clothes but soon noticed that his belongings that they were in his pockets were missing. Uh, a sailor then told him that the possessions of each of the rescued people's belongings had been removed and placed on the table before being washed so that they could each claim their own belongings. belongings. 
Mr. Lee retrieved his badge, visiting card, banknotes, diary, identification, cash, and other items, all of which were not missing. It was then that Mr. Lee learned that the ship that rescued them was the Australian Navy ship HMAS Waramanga, and Mr. W. Harrington was the captain. Mr. Lee said that throughout the rescue process, all officers and men on board the ship showed a high degree of humanitarian spirit. And when they expressed their gratitude, all officers and men on board said that they're very happy and glad that they were able to save the lives of others. Uh, at 2 p.m. that day, Waramanga arrived at the Wusongko. Uh, the rescue men were trusted over the Chinese custom officials. All the rescued person paid tribute and expressed their gratitude to all the officers and the men of the Waramanga. At 6 p.m., the rescued men arrived at the Shanghai Bound Number no. 3 Pier. The representatives of the Taiping Ships com Company met with the rescued men and allocated them to rest in different hotels. That those are Mr. Li Suwen's recollections. It's a fascinating story, and just before we move on to what happened after this, Simon Harrington, is there anything else we need to add about Warramunga's rescue efforts? Uh, yeah, look, I think clearly the uh, ship's company did something special that morning, so much so that a letter was received from the survivors via the Australian Embassy in Nanjing that read, to all dear officers and men of the Australian warship Warramunga, the SS Taipan of the Chungnian Company sank in waters near Zhuzhan Islands on January the 28th, 1949, following collision with the freighter SS Jiangyong. More than a 1,000 passengers of the sunken ship were drifting on the high seas that night in the last struggle for life. Your ship came to the rescue and succeeded to pick up 35 of them. The story was told by the survivors that not only saved their lives, but also took such good care of them aboard your ship and brought them safely to Wusang. The survivors and their dependents will never forget your bravery and love and all the people of China are greatly influenced by your righteous deed when they hear the story. An old Chinese saying said, to save one's life is better than to build a seven-storey palace in heaven. You know how grateful we are to all of you. On behalf of the survivors and their dependents, we are extending to you our deepest gratitude and highest respect. May God bless you all. The crew were pretty pleased to receive that letter, uh, and it's quite a verbatim in the history of Warramunga, written by one of the rescuers, Sam White, who was Honorary Secretary of the Warramunga Association for many years. I think the gratitude is also reflected in the correspondence between my father and Colonel Lee Xu Wen, uh, which we'll discuss shortly. He also probably wrote that letter I just quoted. And also the efforts of, of, of Chao Zhongzhou um, to get in touch with the rescuers many years later. Indeed, when he came to Australia to meet up with them, which happened to coincide with the commissioning of the second Warramanga, I was included in some of the events, and he was very generous to me, presenting a couple of beautiful scrolls, one of which contained a hundred different symbols, all meaning blessings, bliss, good fortune, longevity, birthday, sorry, blessings, good fortune, happiness, and the other with the humble symbols, hundred symbols meaning life, longevity, 
birthday vivacity age. I understand these symbols are very significant in Chinese culture, and the characters are often put together as a phrase when presenting best wishes to a family, friends, and loved ones. Cha Chung Zhou's other granddaughter, Elaine, Jen- Jennifer's younger sister, cared for him on that occasion and was adamant that as my father's son, his gratitude extended to me and it would be unforgivable in his eyes if I didn't accept them. Another matter worth quoting was that there was another ship in the area. Uh, Both the people who we've mentioned uh, talk about it in their records. Ironically, when Chao Zhong Zhou next sought a ticket to Taiwan, the only berth he could get was on that actual ship that was in the area. And during the passage, he got into conversation with one of the crew who had no idea he was a Taiping survivor. The crew member said that they were aware of the disaster occurring but didn't conduct any rescue attempt as the waters were badly charted and there were too many unknown hazards for them to do so. Uh, Chao Zhongzhou gained the impression that the crew member could not have cared less and that made Warramunga's exploits even more creditworthy in his mind. Well, that brings us to the point, uh, Jennifer, and we've heard from you and Cindy and Simon how the survivors uh, were taken by Warramunga to Shanghai. Can you tell us a bit about what happened to your grandfather and some of the other survivors from that point on? Were difficult for grandfather and perhaps the most for most newly arrived mainlanders to Taiwan. He struggled to find a suitable position and certainly no prospect to speak of. Then in 1952, he returned to Japan and taught at the Chinese middle school in Yokohama. He took a position at the office of the Consulate General of the Republic of China in Yokohama in 1952. Since the formal, since the formal diplomatic relationship between the Republic of China and Japan was broken in 1972. The consulate general was dissolved and converted into a non-government organization. He became the head of this organization in 1980 and retired in 1988. He dedicated his time in writing his memoir in Japanese following his retirement and the rescue by HMAS Waramanga. And the rescue part of his memoir was translated into English by his student, Mrs. Stacy Ying Lei Wong, who migrated to California, US. Grandfather was incorrectly informed that his family had been executed by the Communist Party and he married a Japanese lady. They had a daughter whose name is of the same Chinese character with my father, Ming. Cindy, these disasters can have a ripple effect in many people's lives. You've looked at this aspect of the disaster. What can you tell us about that? In April 2021, Dr. Jiang Xingmai, a retired teacher from the University of New South Wales, had mentioned to me that his girlfriend, Mr. Chao Xiangming, had uh, co-written a book with his wife, Jiang Tao, about the typing ship and that Mr. Chow's father had been rescued by the Australian warship HMAS Waramanga. I was also told that it had taken three generations of the family 63 years to find their lifesaver. 
uh, although I have some prior knowledge about the historic background to the Taiping incident, and was fortunate enough to know several descendants of the victims of the Taiping tragedy, tragedy. I've never met a descendant of a survivor rescued by the Australian Navy. And as a journalist, I felt it was important to document such a historical and a dramatic story. So I quickly approached Dr. Jiang, hoping to contact Mr. Chao Shangmin through him and let SBS Chinese audience know how about this history. Uh, because of the pandemic, uh, I only had the opportunity of meeting Mr. Chao Shangmin and Ms. Jiang Tao once. Although we didn't meet for long, I was impressed by the couple who were gentle and, short, and soft-spoken in their conversation, courteous to others, and who seemed to in good spirits, even though they were both approaching 19 years old. But it was with a sense of gratitude that the couple together wrote Nu Hai Chenzhou in November 2020 to tell the story of this period of history. Uh, the book has uh, since been published and is a bestseller in China, Taiwan, Malaysia, and uh, several other countries and even regions in Australia. The couple believes that being able to make this history more accessible to a wider range of people is the best way for them to show their thankfulness. This was the background of the article, Old Man in Tears. The story was later forwarded to Mr. Simon Harrington by Mr. Chao Shangmin's daughter, Miss Jennifer. Uh, my contact with uh, Waramanga was through Sir Simon Harrington, uh, who was indirectly introduced to me by Jennifer. And it was also through Sir Simon Harrington's support that we are able to record this podcast. So I would like to take this opportunity to opportunity to express my gratitude to Sir Simon Harrington for making this history available to a wider audience. Simon, Cindy earlier talked about uh, Li Shu Wen's account of his survival, and you mentioned that uh, there was some correspondence later on between uh, Li Shu Wen and your father, who, now, Li Shu Wen became a colonel in the Republic of China Navy. What can you tell us about this correspondence? The first letter he wrote was to my father was in fact on the 3rd of February 1949, immediately after the collision. It was basically a letter thanking him for what Warramunga had done and enclosing his account of the incident, asking for any input my father might like to make. The letter came by the Consul General in Shanghai, who in, in his covering letter mentioned how impressed the survivors were with the ship's company, specifically mentioning the gallantry shown in the rescue, kindness displayed and that special mention had been made of the fact that nothing was stolen from the survivors, despite the implication in the Consul General's covering letter that some of the survivors had managed to hang on to some pretty valuable items and a significant amount of money. The letter seems to have gone to the Director of Naval Intelligence, who happened to have been the previous commanding officer of Oramunga, Captain Oldham, whose covering letter is dated September 1949, I don't know what happened between uh, uh, February and September to that letter, uh, but that's what happened. I can't find any record of my, of my father responding to that letter, perhaps because there was no address on it. However, that, or certainly the whole incident, clearly stuck in his mind. And when he was Chief of Naval Staff from 1962 to 65, he and my mother became very good friends with the Taiwanese ambassador. Uh, the PRC, of course, wasn't recognised at that time. 
he asked the ambassador if there was any way that Li Xuwen could be located, and he was. Um, so in 1962, some 13 years after the collision, they exchanged letters. By then, as you said, he was a colonel in the Taiwanese Navy and assistant commandant in the military law school in Taipei. The correspondence continued at least until early 1965, mainly in the form of -of end-of-year greetings, although my father also sent him a Christmas gift via the Taiwanese embassy at the end of 1964. As I recall, many of the gifts he gave in those days were kangaroo skin rugs, so while I don't know, that may well have been what he received in Taiwan. Cindy, over the years, there's been other contact between survivors and men of the Warramunga as well. Can you tell us something about that? Yes. Uh, in fact, Master Xing Yun, who was responsible for the establishment of the Nantian Temple in Wulonggong, also bought a ticket to take the Taiping ship to Kilong, but he didn't make it to the ship in time uh, and thus bared. The fact that he did, didn't make it to the Taiping ship and just escaping from death was regarded by Master Xing Yun as a blessing in his life. In addition, after the release of uh, after the release of Old Man in Tears, I received a message and emails from descendants of the victims of the Taiping ship from mainland China and the United States. But it was most in, I was most impressed by one of them, a woman named Elizabeth Chen from New York. In her email, she told me the story about her family members who were scattered across 10 different countries after her father passed away in the tragedy. One of them, her younger sister, was adopted as a child by the then French diplomat in Taiwan and grew up in France. And the sister were only able to recognize each other in Hong Kong by wearing the same dress that were handmade by their mother since they had never seen each other once before. Elizabeth Chen was close friends with Dr. Li Changyu, a renowned American criminal investigation expert, and their father were both victims of the Taiping ship, uh, of the Taiping ship incident. When they came across this Old Man in Tears article, they hoped that they could contact the Hollywood Chinese director, John Wu, uh, this is because in 2014, John directed the film The Crossing, uh, which was about the typing incident. They were e- immensely happy that Mr. Chao Zhongzhou was rescued by Australian Navy and hoped to find all the survivors and the uh, descendants of the victims of the typing incident. And uh, even though invo- who, those who involved in the rescue to make a second sequel to The Crossing. So, Jennifer, as we approach the end of this fascinating podcast. Is is there anything you'd like to add, in particular about the effect of this incident on on your grandfather's life? Certainly. As expressed in my grandfather's memoir, he believed that it was the love of humanity that saved him and the other survivors. Grandfather was a strong advocate for humanity. He truly believed the world would be a much better place if we were all embracing humanity like the crew of Waramanga under the leadership of Captain Harrington. As a diplomat for Taiwan during the Cold War, grandfather was subject to strict travel restrictions. How he was reconnected with the family in China was another story. For many years, 
Letters were exchanged via close family friend in Hong Kong. Not until he retired in 1988, he made a trip to Hong Kong to meet his sons. I came to study in Sydney in 1987, sponsored by grandfather, and my younger sister joined me in 1992. We both go Australian home now. When my parents visited in 1995, they told me how grandfather was rescued by Warramanga in 1949, and his wish to find his survivors. Father asked us to do whatever we can to assist grandfather in fulfilling his mission. We were overwhelmed with this deep connection with Australia. It was wonderful feeling as we both loved Australia. My sister and I embarked on the journey to assist grandfather in finding his survivors, his saviors. After many phone calls, I was informed that I should direct my inquiry to the Senior Naval Historical and Archive Officer. I sent a letter in September '95, and received a response from Sue Jones in a few weeks' time. The letter confirmed the rescue was on record, and the commanding officer was Captain Harrington, who was who has unfortunately passed away. It was suggested that I could get in touch with the association of ex-crew member of Warramanga. Grandfather was so eager; he came to Australia for the first time within a week, and that was the t- first time I met my grandfather, and it was in Sydney, Australia. We first met the secretary of ex-crew association of、uh, Warramanga, Sam White. Um, in 1996, he poured all his energy in helping us finding many ex-crew members who were serving at the time. Grandfather made a few trips to meet various groups, and he looked so happy to be among them, as if they were old friends, and they were cherishing the gathering just the same. All of a sudden, I have many extended family in Australia, a country I love, and I'm proud of. In May 1998, Grandfather was invited as a special guest to attend the inauguration of Warramanga II in Melbourne. He felt so honoured, but was a little hesitant to travel. However, when Sam White informed us that Simon Harrington, who Like father, like son, is a navy officer of high accomplishment. The eldest son of Captain Harrington would also be attending. He immediately accepted the invitation and started his travel plan. My sister Elaine accompanied him to this most memorable event. Grandfather's only regret. Was that he couldn't come forward earlier to thank Captain Harrington in person for the extraordinary act of humanity. Being able to meet the captain's son was most rewarding for him. Also worth mentioning is another special guest at the Warramanga Second Inauguration. His name is Harry Brown, an ex-serviceman of U.S. Navy. He was saved by Warramanga. In January 1945, when his ship was viciously attacked by a Japanese 
kamikaze plane in the Philippines. It's most satisfying to see our servicemen embracing humanity and celebrating such actions. My parents dedicated their retirement years in writing that book about the rescue and incorporated many stories of our extended Waramanga family. Finally, could I ask each of you as we wrap up this incredible story about Taiping and Waramanga for your final thoughts on this incident. Jennifer, can we start with you? Talking about the other survivors, uh, one thing I uh, forgot to mention is that there is an association in Taiwan and uh, there's a memorial um, built on the island. And every year, the family of uh, people who lost their lives uh, in the incident get together and their descendants to commemorate this disaster and the loss of life. On this instant, I am very um, moved and uh, very grateful to have the opportunity to recount this extraordinary act of humanity and uh, humanity without border. Um, As to the impact of this incident to my grandfather, there's um, a, a little story that he declined to get onto the Manly Ferry uh, because of this incident. A completely understandable response. It's interesting that uh, another survivor actually went on to a career in the Navy, so very different responses to this incident. Cindy, some final thoughts from you. Well, the typing tragedy could have been avoided. At that time, in order to sail out to Shanghai during strict curfew hour, the typing accelerated and uh, overloaded without turning on the lights and uh, sounding the horn all the way, which eventually led to the collision with the cargo ship Jianyuan. And overloading, not turning on lights and not sounding the horn were all because of the wartime martial law. So the root of the everything was because of the war. The serious trauma, trauma that war brings to families, to people, and to the psyche of people is deep. In recent times, as part of my job, I've been translating a lot of news related to the war between Russia and Ukraine a daily, as a, on a daily basis. And many of the stories have been heartbreaking. Um, and today, when regional conflict, uh, conflicts are still ongoing, it's even more important that we cherish peace There is an old Chinese saying, where my heart is at peace, that is my hometown. I hope that everyone will find a home that gives us a sense of peace. A wonderful thought to to finish on. And Simon, finally, uh, some final thoughts from you. Yes, uh, one thought is how little is known about uh, this in, in, in general knowledge, so to speak. I mean, the numbers that actually... Uh, were drowned that night are a bit uncertain. Uh, you hear figures between a thousand and fifteen hundred, and from what I can read, it's probably closer to fifteen hundred than a thousand. And when you think uh, that there were only fifteen hundred or well, one thousand five hundred and seventeen people who died on the Titanic, you wonder why one of them's remembered so much and the other one isn't. Particularly when you think that uh, there could well have been an enormous amount of money and gold and other wealth on that ship, 
Um, I think I think that's a rather sad commentary on it. I also think it's uh, the other thing I get out of this, having met him uh, when he came for the commissioning uh, of Chao Zhongzhou, what a remarkable man he was. Um, there was something about him um, that uh, sticks in my mind even now and, and how gracious a man he was and how thrilled he was to be at the commissioning of the second Warramanga. And, of course, how things go round and round. There he was. He was rescued by a ship commanded by my father, and there was I as the support commander, the senior naval officer present at the commissioning of uh, Warramanga while he was there. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for today. And my thanks again to Jennifer Ma, Cindy Sheehy and Simon Harrington. And just by the by, if you wanted to hear some more about the exploits of Arch Harrington, then please have a listen to last year's episode on the RAN and the Gulf in 1941, which is, of course, still available. Today's podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales in Canberra, and it's been done with the assistance of the university's creative media unit. And the production of the podcast is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you once again for joining us. And if you like this episode, please tell other people about the Australian Naval History Podcast Series. Goodbye for now.